You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. The 19th chapter of the Gospel of John says, So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and my, for my clothing they cast lots. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this message. Lord, we remember that on Good Friday, you, the Prince of Life, your life was given for us. And so, Lord, would you help us to understand as we consider these things, what they mean for us, and Lord, how we ought to respond in light of these things. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we were standing there in the parking lot, putting on our gear, you know, our helmets, our goggles, our coats, and our boots. Usually, I'm in a pretty good mood uh, when I go snowboarding. But on this particular Monday, I wasn't very talkative. And my friend who was with me could tell that something was up. And so he asked me what was going on. And I explained to him that Mondays are the day that I usually spend with my wife uh, while all of our kids are in school. But instead of spending this Monday with her, I had ditched her to hang out with him, basically. And although Rosemary hadn't said anything, I knew she probably wasn't very happy about it. I mean, how could she be? Who would be happy about that? I had ditched her to go snowboarding with this other person. And now I was in the situation where I couldn't even enjoy the fact that I was snowboarding because I felt so bad about what I had done. And my friend made a suggestion. He said, you know what you should do? You should buy her some chocolate. And I said, no, no, you don't understand. She's the only person in the world who doesn't like chocolate. That's not going to work. So he said, OK, well, then you should buy her some flowers. I said, no, I think you still don't understand. First of all, she doesn't like bribery. But secondly, she also doesn't like cut flowers. Because in her mind, when you give somebody cut flowers, it's like saying, hey, I found something really beautiful. And then I killed it. And now you get to watch it wither for several days until you eventually just throw it in the trash. And she says, well, what's beautiful about that? Well, in a way, it's kind of like Good Friday. Something incredibly beautiful has been cut down. The Gospel of John begins by telling us that Jesus was the true light of the world and that in him was life, and that life was the light of men, that he, Jesus, was the light that shines in the darkness. And yet on Good Friday, the light of life was snuffed out. It was overcome by darkness. Like cut flowers, here's Jesus, the most beautiful person who ever lived. And on the cross, he was cut down, snuffed out, and killed. 
To be executed on a cross was considered the most shameful way you could possibly die. Crucifixion was not invented by the Romans, actually. It was invented by the barbarians who lived on the edges of the Roman Empire. It was adopted by the Romans as kind of a scare tactic because it was so incredibly brutal. It was uh, invented to be one of the most extreme forms of torture because what was so terrible about crucifixion is that it didn't kill you right away and it wasn't even designed to. It was actually designed to drag out the process so that you wouldn't just die. The goal was to make sure that you suffered for as long as possible and that you suffered as much as possible. And for that reason, crucifixion was reserved only for the worst criminals, the murderers and the rebels. In fact, crucifixion was so terrible and the Romans recognized the fact that it was so terrible that in the Roman Empire, they would not allow their own citizens, no matter what kind of heinous crimes they might have committed, it was forbidden for a Roman citizen to ever be punished by crucifixion. It was considered too brutal and too inhumane. Well, for the Jewish people in particular, to be crucified on a cross was considered to be a fate that was actually worse than death because according to the Hebrew scriptures, in the book of Deuteronomy, it said that anyone who was hanged and killed by being hanged upon a tree, that person was to be considered accursed by God. And so just imagine if you told somebody back then that you were a follower of a man who had been convicted of a crime and then executed by crucifixion, that person would have thought, what kind of terrible person are you following? They would have wondered, and they would have probably said to you, hey, listen, even if that's true, you should probably keep that to yourself. That's not the kind of thing that you want to go around telling people or advertising because, well, that's humiliating. It's, it's terrible. It's humiliating. We read also about how above Jesus' head was nailed a piece of paper on which were written the words in three languages, the king of the Jews. Of course, this was a form of mockery. The other gospel accounts tell us that the soldiers mocked Jesus. They placed a mock crown on his head, but this crown was not made of gold. It was made of thorns that cut into his skin. They dressed him up in robes like a pretend king, and then they punched him in the face and spit upon him. And the reason they did this is because Jesus had come supposedly as the one who would fulfill all of the prophecies that were in the Hebrew scriptures, which said that one day God was going to send them a king who would overthrow all oppressors, who would establish an eternal kingdom of justice and peace. But now as Jesus hung upon the cross, it seemed very clear that Jesus had been defeated that his mission had been a failure, that his prophecies had not been fulfilled, and that the Roman and, and Jewish religious leaders had succeeded in thwarting his plans. And yet here's what's interesting. In spite of all of this, the early Christians, for the early Christians, the fact that Jesus was crucified was not something that they ever tried to hide. It's not something that they tried to ignore or erase from their history or brush aside. No, in fact, the symbol of the cross in very short time after this event, it became the main symbol that they used to identify themselves, which is weird because the cross is generally, it was generally considered to be the ultimate symbol of humiliation, the ultimate symbol of defeat. In the New Testament, the, the early Christians, though, <clears throat> when they described their message, what it means to be a Christian, what is the message that they proclaim? You know what they said it was? They said the message we proclaim is the message of the cross. 
That's our message. They said, you know what the good news of Jesus Christ is? It's the good news of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why? This thing that represents shame, humiliation, and defeat. Why would anyone want to be associated with that? Why would anyone want to identify themselves as a follower of a man who had been tried and found guilty and then executed by crucifixion? Paul the Apostle, he explains to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, he says this, listen, the message of the cross, it is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. How is that possible? How is the cross, the message of the cross, how does it represent God's power to save us? Well, the answer is found in something that we read there in our text in John chapter 19, verse 30, where it says that Jesus, with his dying breath, said these words, it is finished. It is finished. As he said those words, understand, we just read black and white words on a page, right? We just read, it is finished. We don't hear the tone with which he said it. But you need to understand this. When Jesus said, it is finished, that was not the sigh of a defeated man. When Jesus said, it is finished, he was not giving up. He was not conceding defeat. No, instead, this phrase, it is finished, was a declaration of victory. In Greek, this phrase that takes us three words, it is finished, it's just one word in Greek. It's the word tetelestai. And that word has a very distinct meaning. It has distinct usages, times when it would be used in common language. For example, if you purchased something and you paid the price for it and you're going to come pick it up later, well, they would mark it. They would mark it with a receipt. And on that receipt, they would write this word, tetelestai, which meant essentially it's done, it's paid in full. Nothing more is owed. When a master painter, for example, would complete his masterpiece with his final brushstroke, he would declare, Tetelestai, it is finished. See, when a sculptor would make his final touch, uh, finishing touch on the sculpture that he was working on, he would take a step back, put down his tools, and say, it is finished. Tetelestai. You see, when a writer would add the final period to the book that he had been writing, he would step back and declare, Tetelestai, it is finished. As we would say, done and dusted, paid in full, voila. You know, this phrase, it is finished, tetelestai, it was not a concession of defeat. It was a declaration of victory. But just imagine how bizarre that would have sounded to the people who were standing there around the foot of Jesus' cross, the people who had been involved in sending him to that death, the people who had been involved in actually killing him. They would have been incredibly confused to hear him say this phrase because they knew what it meant, right? Here's these soldiers, these authorities who had put Jesus to death, and they would have thought to themselves, Wait a second. This guy that we just killed, did we hear him right? Did he really just basically say, I win? Is that what he just said? How is that possible? With his dying breath, as he's been killed, the man says, I win? How does that work? These soldiers and authorities who thought they were in control, Jesus was declaring in his death that he had actually accomplished exactly what he intended to. What was it that Jesus accomplished on the cross? The reason why Jesus declared victory on the cross, the reason why Christians came to see the cross not as a symbol of embarrassment or humiliation or defeat, but as the most beautiful, meaningful, central aspect of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is because on the cross and in his death, Jesus fulfilled and completed everything that God had been promising and building up to through all of history. 
The Bible documents it for us, God's plan to meet our greatest need and to, to fix our largest problem. Look at what it says in the book of Galatians, chapter 3. It says this, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. When it talks about the works of the law, understand it's referring to morality. Morality on the one hand in general, but also morality in particular, meaning the morality that's outlined and laid out in God's word, God's perfect standard. And what this means is that all of us, without exception, have fallen short of God's perfect standard. But beyond that, we've also fallen short of morality in general. If I were to ask you, tell me, how is it that you think people should behave? How is it that what you think people should do? What is right? If you were to tell me, what is the standard that you hold other people to? I can guarantee that you yourself have not always lived up to that standard. You see, it's not just that we fall short of God's standard. It's that we fall short of even our own standards of morality. That's the issue. We have fallen short on the one hand of morality in general. We've fallen short of God's perfect standard. And as a result, we have brought upon ourselves a curse. And this curse that we brought upon ourselves, the Bible calls it the curse of sin. And the result of this curse is death separation from God forever. And all of us are under this curse because all of us have done things which we ourselves know that we ought not to have done. All of us at times, we have failed to give God the honor and the reverence that is owed to him as God. And as a result, we have this debt of sin, which is a barrier between us and God. And unless this barrier is removed, we will be separated from God for all of eternity. Now, maybe you say, well, separated from God from all of eternity, what's the big deal with that? I'll just hang out by myself. You know, I'll be fine. Well, listen, that's actually a pretty big problem to be separated from God for all eternity. And here's why. If God is the source of all that is good and true and beautiful and right, then it follows that to be cut off from God forever means to be cut off forever from everything that is good and beautiful and true and right. If God is light, then to be cut off from God forever is to be condemned to outer darkness for eternity. Friends, that would be eternal torment. It would literally be hell. But the good news, the good news that God wants us to know, that God wants to share with us from his word, from the scriptures, from the Bible, is that God tells us, I don't want that for you. I don't want you to spend eternity in hell separated from me. In spite of all your sins, in spite of everything that you've done, God would tell you, I love you, and I have made a plan and a way to save you. And throughout history, through the prophets, God began to reveal what he was going to do, what he was going to do to solve this problem and to save us from the curse that we had brought upon ourselves, the mess that we have made for ourselves. Through the prophets, God revealed that he was going to send a person, a little later on, God revealed that the way that sin could be dealt with was for a substitute to take the judgment that another deserved in your place. And to illustrate this, God gave the people of Israel, he gave them a system of substitutionary sacrifices in order to make atonement for their sins. Lambs and goats that they would slaughter in order to make atonement for their sins. But even then, God told them, listen, this is not it. This is just a sign, a symbol, which represents and prepares you for and points you to the real thing, the real solution, which is still yet to come. 
And check out what it says there in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. What Jesus accomplished on the cross was the fulfillment of God's master plan of salvation that God had been working on throughout all of history. Jesus became our perfect substitute. He took the curse of sin upon himself on the cross, and by doing so, he set us free. Notice the word that it uses there. It says that Christ redeemed us from the curse. You know, we, we hear that word redeem, and it sounds like kind of a churchy, kind of religious word, but you know where that word originated from, where that word with the idea of redeeming a person, that came from the slave trade in the ancient world, this idea of redeeming a person. And the reason is this, that Oftentimes in the ancient world, the way that a person became a slave was not because of the color of their skin or their race. Most oftentimes, the reason a person became a slave was because of debt, right? They would accumulate a certain amount of debt, and they'd be unable to pay that debt, and they would be forced into a life of slavery until they could work off that debt if they ever could. But see, that was the problem. Many times a person's debt was so big that no matter how much or how long they worked, they would never be able to pay it off, not in their entire life. And so if that was the case, in, in such cases, the only hope for a person in that situation to be released from the slavery that they were in was for someone else to step in and intervene on their behalf and to pay that debt for them that they couldn't pay. And by doing so, they would redeem that person out of slavery. But in order for that to happen, it required there to be an extremely generous and also an extremely wealthy person. And yet, this, the Bible tells us, is what God has done for us, what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. On the cross, Jesus took our curse in order to pay our debt, in order to redeem us. He gave his life to redeem your soul. And with his final breath, he declared, it is finished, paid in full, tetelestai. If Jesus' hands had not been nailed to that cross, you can be sure that he would have raised a fist of victory. That's what that word means. You see, everything that God had been preparing for and building up to in his master plan to save us from the curse of sin, so that rather than darkness and death for all of eternity, we might have light and life with him for eternity. This was the final touch, the one thing that all had been building up to, and Jesus did it. His death, rather than being a defeat, was the completion of everything that was needed in order for us to be saved and redeemed by God. This is why Good Friday is good news. This is why the cross is not a symbol of defeat or failure or embarrassment, but rather the ultimate symbol of God's love for you. Because in the person of Jesus Christ, God came to us. And in he came to us in order to take our curse from us. And he took it upon himself in order to pay your debt so that you might be forgiven and redeemed. And beyond that, that you might be adopted into the family of God as a child of God and have your home with him forever. The good news of Good Friday is this. Because Jesus finished his work on the cross, you can be sure that God will also finish the good work he has begun in you, as well as the good works that he wants to accomplish through you as his workmanship. Let me just break that down very quickly into two parts. Because Jesus finished his work on the cross, you can be sure that God will finish the good work he has begun in you. 
Paul the Apostle tells us in Philippians chapter 1, he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. As you take his hand and walk with him, he will see you through it. That's what he does. He is faithful to see through what he begins. And that will be the case with you as well. You can be sure of it. But listen, because Jesus finished his work on the cross, not only can you be sure that God will finish the good work he has begun in you, but you can also be sure that God will complete the good works that he wants to accomplish through you as his workmanship. In the second chapter of his letter to the Ephesians, Paul the Apostle, after explaining to his readers how God has acted to save their souls, he then tells them what God wants to do with their lives. And what he tells them there in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 is this. He says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand for us to walk in them. That word workmanship, it's an interesting word once again. It's the Greek word poema from which we get our word poem or poetry. It refers to a work of art, something that has been created for the purpose of expression. And what Paul is telling us here is this. It's that just as Jesus completed his work on the cross, and just as God will be faithful to complete his work that he has begun in you in the same way, God, as a master artist, wants to accomplish his work through you. What Paul is describing here is like this. If God was a painter, he wants you to be his canvas. If God was a writer, he wants you to be the paper. And God's desire is that your life would be like a walking billboard that displays his work to the world, a display of his grace, a display of his heart, a walking billboard through which he can express himself to the world so people can see through you what he is like his grace, his love, his desire to forgive, his desire to embrace, his desire to show grace to those who will receive it. Listen, because Jesus finished his work on the cross, you can be sure that God will finish the good work that he has begun in you, as well as the good works he wants to accomplish through you as his workmanship. Well, I told you a story at the beginning. Do you remember about how I ditched my wife to go snowboarding and then I felt bad about it? Well, I only told you the first part of the story. The, the end of the story goes like this. After I told my friend this, right, that Rosemary doesn't like chocolate or bribery or flowers, uh, he asked me, well, then what does she like? And I said, well, honestly, the thing that she likes the most, she actually likes spending time together with me. And that's why it's such a bad move that I ditched her to go snowboarding with you, right? And my friend told me this. He said, Listen, he said, the fact that her favorite thing is spending time with you, man, that's a huge compliment. And he goes, buddy, she really loves you. And I said, you know what? Man, you're right. Well, let me tell you this. In the same way, how can you be sure that God loves you? How can you be sure that God loves you? You know how? Here's how. Because on the cross, he did everything so that you could be with him. He did everything so you could have a relationship with him and so you could spend eternity with him. And friends, how could you pass up that gift? The way to receive that gift is by faith, by trusting in what Jesus accomplished for you on the cross as he declared, it is finished. Well, let's now turn our attention to the bread and the cup, the elements for communion. And as we do that, let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for this incredible gift that you have given us. 
Lord, that though we made the mess, Lord, you came to save us. And thank you, Lord, that you didn't uh, just do it halfway, but Lord, you completed it all the way. Everything that was needed to be done for us, you accomplished out of love for us. Lord, may we truly see that, that this is the ultimate symbol of your love, that the cross is not a symbol of defeat and humiliation, but is the ultimate symbol of how much you truly love us, Lord, that you would come to us and do everything that was needed so that we could be with you. And Lord, I pray that we all here today would be those who receive this gift by faith. And so now as we take this bread in our hands, we remember your body nailed to the cross, not for your own sins, but for our sins. You were our substitute. You took our place. You lived the life that we ought to have lived. And then you died the death that we ought to have died for us on our behalf in order to redeem us and to pay our debt. So Lord, we are so thankful. And we take this bread now with faith. As we take it together, it is our way of saying, yes, we receive, Jesus, this gift that you have given to us by your grace. And we take this now in Jesus' name. And now as we take this cup, we remember your blood that was shed for us, your blood that flowed from your head, from your hands, from your feet, from your side, your life poured out, given for us, that through you we might have eternal life. So Lord, we receive this now with joy and with faith as we remember what you've done for us. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.